This is exactly right. With the use of phones and screens and social media, it's just taken things to the nth degree. And it has made things harder for parents. I can tell you that just personally, anytime I learn about a new site or a new thing, it's obsolete already. They're 50 steps ahead. It's really hard. It's made everything much tougher. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan, your host, and let me tell you about our mission. Our mission is to make the world a more loving and compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. We believe the key to raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives, happiness, health, and engagement. We firmly believe that awareness is the foundation for your vision of successful parenting, And with increased awareness and intention, we can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint on our children. Today's show is called Barbarians at the PTA, Parenting, Psychology, Teens, and Screens. I am happy to introduce you to our guest, Dr. Stephanie Newman, who is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst with over 25 years of experience providing insight-oriented talk therapy for those with anxiety, depression, and relationship health and workplace difficulties. She's the co-editor of Money Talks and a regular contributor to the online edition of Psychology Today. Dr. Stephanie is a faculty member at PANI, which is formerly NYU Psychoanalytic Institute and is a visiting scholar, clinical supervisor at Columbia University. She is also the author of Mad Men on the Couch, which was named one of Publishers Weekly's top 10 books in performing arts, and her new book, Barbarians at the PTA, which we'll be talking about today, is her first novel. She has been on numerous media outlets sharing her wonderful work, and most importantly, she lives in New York with her family. Dr. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So in, in, in reading about you, you and your profile and your work, I am just drawn to um, a fellow profiler, I should say, as a, as a fellow psychologist, um, and how much your work um, is so much about um, people and personality types and, um, and, and, and everything related, which we're going to talk about. And so a question I always like to ask is, how did you become a psychologist first, and then what led you into wanting to become a psychoanalyst? That's a, those are interesting questions. Um, I was working in New York City and uh, n- not loving what I was doing, and also in a long-term relationship um, that that wasn't going going as well as I wanted it to. And it, it was sort of like, wow, who's driving this train? So I had a friend tell me that therapy helped her, and I went to somebody, and we talked. And the this person happened to be a psychoanalyst, so I, you can guess how that happened. You know, I found myself on the couch after a while, uh, going more frequently. But as we delved deeper, I realized this is a really interesting field. And then I took a lot of classes. I hadn't studied any psychology, nothing. And I took classes at night after work. And I 
um, did some research and did some volunteer work on the, the weekends and then did the applications for PhD programs. And I was fortunate enough to get in. And there you go. And then that that began a journey, uh, you know. So tell tell folks, you know, people hear about psychoanalysis, and I think it has, um, you know, Woody Allen and other uh, media portray- portrayals of psychoanalysis. It, you know, there's a there's sort of a um, stereotype. But please tell tell everyone, like, what? How do you describe psychoanalysis and what it does? What that work does for people? This is one of those moments where it's a shame that you can't see me because I am a 90-year-old man with a gray beard. And oh, I've seen your picture. <laughs> I've seen your picture. She's not everyone. <laughs> but that's um, that's the stereotype, right? Yep, yep. And um, I think depending on where you, in, you live in the country, you know, probably psychoanalysis is more widely practiced in, among some, you know, in some places. It was a, a pretty popular thing on the East Coast um, at the time that I trained, you know, when dinosaurs walked the earth. And um, so uh, it, it, it does have the Woody Allen stereotype. Really, um, the American Psychoanalytic is a big organization. And, and you know, their mission is to, to explain to people that psychoanalysts really are just like anyone else. And that um, those principles of understanding yourself or how your mind works, are, it doesn't mean um, it's some antiquated, odd thing where you just talk about your mother or um, you go for 50 years. It really isn't that dissimilar to other talk therapies in, in regards to wanting to help people being respectful in the room, uh, have, making it be safe, under you know, belief that the understanding or the relationship with the therapist will, is helpful, leads to insight or leads to something curative. It's, you know, it isn't that different than, mm-hmm. it's certainly different than cognitive uh, therapies where the focus is if you change your thoughts, you can change your feelings or other, you know, other, there are other extremes and differences. But I'm eclectic. I will use very practical strategies with people. I don't think anyone wants to come in and just talk with no um, nobody, you know, on the other side, really. Or now it's screen, you know, via teletherapy or phone. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to just be in a vacuum and get no feedback. That that caricature certainly doesn't apply to anyone I know. I'm mm-hmm. more active, um, mm-hmm. but I listen. I, I do a lot of listening. Mm-hmm. And what about? Um just closing this loop because this is a public service annou- announcement about psychoanalysis is um, the other myth is, you know, you got to go like basically five days a week, like every day, um, which can be quite time intensive. What is the modern approach or the range of the modern approach? Wow. These are such interesting topics. I didn't, uh, you know, I'm happy to talk about it. They're going to be so excited at the American psychoanalytic that someone cares. Um, <laughs> I'm just warming us up for the big yeah, show. Yeah. 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 It's certainly, it's certainly become a very hot topic now. It used to be five days a week. And I think that it's a, it's the modern world. And I think there are people who think you can only get the full effect and the most intensity and the work in the room can only emerge if you go five times a week. I don't know anyone personally that holds to that. I think people believe that with a motivated patient client, with with the therapist analyst working really hard, they come to different arrangements. Sometimes it's three times a week. Sometimes it's four. You know, do you use a couch? Do you not? The the point is really to have something stick and meet someone 
at the place they are and allow them to, to do the work. I wouldn't be a stickler and say that's not analysis because it's not five days a week or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't, but um, there probably are, you know, I once heard a story about in Switzerland, the way they voted was they went on the top of a mountain and they held their hands up, you know, in a tiny village. <laughs> I, I'm just not holding out for that old fashioned. It's okay. Whatever works for that diet. Whatever works. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. We have not talked about psychoanalysis on the show yet. And I'm glad I just always like um, getting information out to our um, our listeners because there are so many ways to get health and there's a lot of stereotypes and misinformation out there. And we are all we are all evolving individually and our fields continue to evolve as, as time goes on. So, okay. Parenting. So here you are, you're a um, psychologist, you're a psychoanalyst, a psychoanalyst in training, and then a psychoanalyst. And when did parenting become part of your professional repertoire? How did that evolve? Um, yeah, uh, so along the training way, I got married, and um, I would guess I probably started analytic training, which was, we did classes on Saturday mornings, That that was a big commitment. Um, so you work all week and then you go Saturday morning for mm-hmm. classes. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, fun, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you learn a lot, but right. Yeah. I, at yeah. this stage in my life, I wouldn't, yeah. I'm sure I wouldn't do that. And yeah. um, I think, I think when I was a first year, I, I had my uh, oldest child and, um, a first year candidate, meaning I was already a psychologist and already, um, a, um, you know, licensed psychologist. So, so that, so I, I didn't have a, a baby during that training, but I did during the, the psychoanalytic training, which is really, you're working in your job and you're also doing this extra thing where you take classes. So you're seeing patients in your practice anywhere, clients, whatever people call it, you know, whichever people are comfortable with. Yeah. And, and so, so that's when it happened. And I, we had a very close core group of people. We met every Saturday for four years and, um, well, I don't mean we met like on Christmas or something, but we met during the school year, Saturdays for four years. And, um, and I remember, um, hearing that after I gave birth, I was in, I was actually at the hospital where the Institute was affiliated. Um, and somebody in the class was like, we should walk over and visit her. And somebody else was like, no, we shouldn't. Somebody who just had a baby does not want the class to visit her. I would have had them, but I just thought that was a really funny story. Yeah. That that's I guess I hadn't thought about that in a while, but that's when that was the timing. So I was really being a parent at the same time as I was learning to be. Um, I was a young psychologist and learning to be an analyst. And and then parenting as as a um, as an area of focus. Uh, did you ever think when you went into the field that that you would become like one of your main area topic areas would be on parenting? No way. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting how that happens. And um, I always talk about how I think I was a, you know, it was so much simpler being a psychologist before kids. uh, And uh, because it's like, it was just so easy to like have judgments about if the parents and if they just did things differently, then, you know, everything would be fine with their kids. And then you have your own and you realize it doesn't really work that way. Oh, that's for sure. And where I thought you were going is if someone wanted an 8 p.m. appointment, sure, or a 7 a.m. True, 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 yeah. You, you're more hamstrung when you have people at home, um, you know, and you don't want child welfare visiting you because you've left them alone in the house or something. So, yeah. Yeah. 
So your so your writings, um, psychology for people um, who are going to be looking for more of your um, resources. So on Psychology Today, you have quite um, a big following, and um, your information is spread. Uh, millions of people downloading uh, your work, and you know there's there's these major topics these days that are really hitting home. And I know one of them um, is which I was really intrigued with um, having to. Um, teenagers and um, old and older is um, why teens dress exactly like their friends and um, tell tell us a little bit about that one <laughs> yes um, I'm really interested in the issue of identity and teens are consolidating their identity they're trying on new friend groups or trying on new um, ways of relating or and joining a group is sort of the precursor to going out and you know starting your own life as a as an independent person whatever that you know whatever your family or uh, partnerships will look like or whatever your work life will look like so you know they try on different hats and the old you know, a uh, mirroring function that some psychologists wrote about, and I'm not going to use a lot of psychobabble because no one likes that. But just the idea of what's so great um, about the early, early moments between, say, a baby and a caregiver is the baby says, you know, goo, 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 and the tuned-in caregiver says, goo, 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 and looks right back. And that moment of every buddy being in tune and the one thing getting mirrored back to show, yes, I heard you. I saw you. I accept you. I lo- I think what you're doing is fabulous. And the baby sees that, that admiration in the, you know, in the, the caregiver's eye and they start to build up strength and esteem and feel good. And these are millions of moments. This isn't like a one time thing or seen in a movie. That's how I see it. I'm sure other people would see it differently. And um, so that function is so important. And in a way, when they all copy each other as preteens and teens or can't be different than the group, I thought in a way they're mirroring each other. And that function is so important. Even I even see adult women do it. You know, the, the book you're going to talk about with me later, yeah. all of this. There's no dressing like your friends necessarily, but everybody um, – does derive maybe some sort of feeling of security or belonging or, or esteem if they if if this is important to them it's it's building their image it's shaping um, and those kinds of interactions of hey you look just like me you look good hey you look good wow I like that I like that I'm mm-hmm. I'm twinning with you there's so much use of the word twinning on social media and people will put up a copy of you know either a celebrity or a um, whatever that look look like sometimes a pet and a person, you know, funny, it's a funny concept and people view it as a positive twinning is not so great in from a psychological standpoint, because it's, it's um, sort of swallowing something whole. You want, you don't want to be exact. You, you want to take the aspects of it and then be able to, um, you know, make it your own. Like they say on those reality shows where they sing, so you don't want to twin exactly and just be a carbon copy paper doll cutout. But teens or preteens dress like their friends because they want to not just fit in, but I think it's consolidating their identity. It really helps if they have the right sneaker, if they look exactly like it, and then the person approves of them and they approve of the other person. It's I think it's sort of like what goes on with a 
teensiest babies and toddlers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So developmentally, it, it's normalizing. I get like this is part of development, and we all know that, especially during adolescence. Um, you know, a big stage of identity development. Who am I? Where do I fit? Where do I belong? Try this on, and um, so it, it. This is a part of the process. Um, you know, the, the fitting in and, and would you say it's, it's, it's a normal part of the process and the goal is then to form this healthy identity of, you know, what parts do you like and what, and what parts do you don't, don't you like? And who are you? Who am I? Definitely. I think that's how I see it. So I think it's healthy. I think the peer group becomes super important during adolescence. This isn't my idea. I've heard a lot of people say this. And, but the parents are still important. The family is still important. But yes, the, the ha- being part of the group and then they all do similar things or look a similar way. It, it's often, um, it's also very interesting. People have asked a lot, and maybe they ask you this too. How do you know if something's not right with your kid? And if all of a sudden mm-hmm. their appearance changes drastically or their friend group changes drastically, you, you should be asking some questions. Mm-hmm. And of course, they always want to give you the answer, like an open book, right? Like that's oh, this yeah. is the <laughs> this is the such the challenge of um, this dance with teenagers is is providing that um, you know the go away come closer. Like they 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 want they want space, but they also want us to to pay attention and to be there. And walking that line of you know pay attention to me, but get away from me can be really challenging for parents in these situations. It's true. You've nailed it. And so many people feel rejected. And I tell them that it's not personal. Your kid is trying to separate. They love you. Just mm-hmm. tol- tolerate it and don't be reactive. And show somehow don't be withholding and withdraw. That's the worst thing you could do when your kid pushes you away. You sort of have to show that you're there at a distance. Use humor if you have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, humor and um, big proponent of humor. And also, I found taking big deep breaths <laughs> instead of saying what's in my mind <laughs> could be is really effective or or for not making a situation worse than it needs to be it's such a important thing and and not always so easy to uh, achieve if you're the parent mhm and the other thing you're just you're making me think of is how many times um these conversations happen in my office which is it, it does feel you said it does feel so personal and and so much of the time, the the kids' behaviors, teens' behaviors, like it's, it's parents would be surprised with how little that that young person is thinking about them. Like the behavior has, n- like, do you see what they're doing to me? It's like they're not doing anything to you. They're like trying to live their life and not even actually considering you much of the time, which is where there's some disconnect. But it's trying to create that space and to really have that empathy and compassion for this growing human who um, is just trying to figure things out. And often things are confusing and um, there's a lot of stress that goes with the process. Absolutely true. And the the teenagers, it's not intentional. They're in their own bubble. They almost seem like um, people love now to talk about narcissism. It's become Mm -hmm. a fascination for the public. Teen teens seem like these narcissists because there there's just not such an awareness of the other, and mm-hmm. they don't mean it in, in an aggressive way. Even though parents sometimes feel very hurt, I really try to tell parents to not 
get hurt by them. You know, like you said, give them the space. Of course they can't be disrespectful or burn down the house or, but you know, maybe they soil the nest a little and, and they, mm-hmm. they, you let them go away and they go away, but they, they do need you to show um, that you're still there, even if it's a, from afar and teens that come home um, from, from college or boarding school and they've been away, they still need to be parented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't want to be. Um, yeah, and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, college students are either home or coming home um, after living away, and uh, it's something that we do really need to be aware of too. Is that um, the autonomy that has been uh, created with the opportunities that um, children have been provided, or now you know teenagers, young adults, and then how do we again walk that line of of guide? And setting healthy boundaries while also giving that space um, for these young people to continue to grow. Yes. So um, this show, as you and the listeners know, has a lot to do about uh, self-awareness and how our increased awareness um, can positively impact not only ourselves, but our children and how we live our lives and how we raise our children. And you, your book is a perfect, I love this, go into your book, Barbarians at the PTA. Your book has been described as Desperate Housewives Meets Mean Girls. (laughs) Now, that is intriguing from multiple perspectives because um, we know that uh, there are many lures to the, the multiple Desperate Housewives shows and lives and characters. And also... Mean Girls has been something that's been around um, for a long time, um, and not just with teenagers, um, with um, with adults as well. And so, um, tell us about. Actually, before we start the story, tell us how the story came to be from I you. Well, and I was also thinking that I could add some of the people involved in the, the recent Varsity Blues college scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's sort of like the over-involved, the caricature of the over-involved parent. If the moms from Desperate Housewives, the people from the Varsity Blues uh, college scandal, and, the, mm. uh, and the, the cast of Mean Girls or the characters of Mean Girls all moved en masse to your mm-hmm. street, that would be the yes. book. That's the trifecta right there. That's a pow- that's a powerful combination, um, and and a and a really a um, an image, a, a lot of imagery of what's going on in our culture these days. So it's it, how did it evolve? And also the book, the book has some serious things um, because I, you know, you just can't you can't escape who you are. I am a psychologist. I'm a psychoanalyst. Mm-hmm. But the the book is supposed to have some funny, I, I understand people think it's funny too. And um, it's supposed to be a light, it's supposed to be a light read. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So what, what basically happened was uh, a number of years ago, I, I do some teaching where students come that are tr- learning to be psychologists and they um, sometimes medical residents and they read notes from their sessions. So between that, um, hearing notes from people's sessions and that and just um, observing things with my own eyes and getting calls from friends in other countries or across the, you know, across the nation, whatever, across, I meant to say the other coast. And um, wherever I was at the kitchen table, I kept hearing the same story. And I I thought that the, that some parents were really over-involved and I, I have empathy for people who you see your child suffer and there's nothing worse and you would like to fix it. 
But at the same time, to me, empathy really involves being able to step in and share the feeling and feel it, but also be able to step out because you know it's not yours. And what I started to notice was whatever, wherever I heard this in the, the cases I was supervising in the, in the, um, in the, you know, in the stories I was hearing from friends in different places, whatever I saw, there was a lot of over-involvement and hovering and not so much stepping out or mirror looking. And the collateral damage is, can be tough to kids if parents are so involved. So I thought, wow, this is, and it was very hard for the people who were dealing with this. Um, and I thought this is a real opportunity to start a conversation in a fun way, because really, if you do it in a dry um paper for the profession 300 people will read it and nod their heads and but I just thought this could be fun and I, it was a personal challenge for me to write a novel I thought that would be fun too so so give us give us the quick synopsis about the the, the main character because I know that there there is an evolution um, where the main character has to make some pretty tough decisions right about her her life situation her reputation and standing up in a sense, for her child. That's true. I, I, as I said, very interested in identity. The main character is a psychologist and single mom, and she has a fifth grader. And um, they move uh, to. They have. They they for for various reasons have to move out of the city. They move, and they're they're the outsiders in this very small suburb, and um, trying to fit in the kid tries to fit in with the other kids the mom the tries to meet people to fit in with the other moms and has to help her daughter uh navigate some different scenarios involving social media involving clicks involving um her own development as a a, a kid you know becoming an older kid trying and the, the it brings up a lot in the mother too funny funny situations where she's at work and maybe running into patients at the grocery store in her gym clothes or whatever, but also cause it's a small town, but also um, not so funny situations where you, you know, you can't run around fighting with other parents all the time as much as you might want to. Um, you, and you you have to let your kids solve some things for themselves. So she has to struggle with how involved to get and, um, and when to say something and when to let the, the, the kid deal with it. And of course, and when, if there's real danger, you you do get involved. But this was this is fiction. This is all made mm -hmm. up. So, mm -hmm. so what what is your what is so? I, I guess that the uh, character the character figures this out in a way that you think that a parent might go about this tough situation, or does the character uh, de depart from how you would? suggest your clients your parent your adult clients deal with these sorts of situations well when i was writing it and you to write a novel you do 80 or 90 million drafts and throw them away because they're terrible and mm -hmm. it evolves over time um real, it's fun though if you like that i i, I think um had one early draft of a, a mother a therapist mother just worrying and there was about 150 pages of her worrying about and somebody said to me like something has to happen <laughs> kept have a plot with events so okay she can't just sit and worry um because parents really do worry and they really want to help their children and the, i just want to you know i said it was fiction also i was part of the pta i volunteered i have enormous respect for parent volunteers it's just a very good title to let people know this will be about wars in the sandbox you know pta mm -hmm. moms if people just know and so 
um, when you asked, you know, was it, was it how a mom would handle it or does she, is she going off the rails? There's, you, you know, there's a, a, there's a challenge with how to really, um, meet, uh, some pretty scary scenarios head on to protect your child, do it in an appropriate way. Also have your, you know, your practice or your reputation. You can't just go around saying anything that pops into your head, sort of what, like what you said, you'd love to tell your kids off. Sometimes you don't do it. Mm-hmm. So, um, would a psychologist mom handle things a little bit differently? How a psychologist mom handles parenting is one of the, the hooks, you know, or the, the types of things that this book brings up. Yeah. And it's, it's such a, I mean, this is going for all of us parents, uh, these days with, uh, screens and cyber bullying. Um, you know, we just used to, we used to have regular bullying, which was a little more, um, observable. Uh, now things are, are, are less observable. Um, this is, this is a, um, a gender stereotype. So I'll, I'll run this by you. Um, that often that girls and women can be so much more subtle in their bullying where um, boys and men are thought to be much more direct. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you find that being valid from your experience? Yeah, I would say right before I respond directly, the generation of parents like right before me, and I think, I think maybe you, um, I think we're similar, but uh, didn't have, the kids didn't have social media and they didn't have phones. And mm-hmm. once that was introduced, well, that, just was game changing. I think now this generation of parents that's a little bit younger is going to have the pandemic and all the online schooling um, be game changing. So just just to respond, I just want to put it in the context of girls in this book and the the girl the parenting I hear about is different than the bullying, the Charles Atlas like old 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 stereotype kicking sand in the face or knocking books out. Right. I mean that's right. really old. With um, with the use of phones and screens and social media, um, it's just taken things to the nth degree, and it has made things harder for parents. I can tell you that just personally, anytime I learn about a new site or a new thing, it's obsolete already. They're 50 steps ahead. It's mm-hmm. really hard. It's made the, everything much tougher. So. And girls yeah. are more subtle, so they use social media mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. really know that many stories of boys who are on, young boys or teenagers who are on social media for the purpose of bullying. You know, they're more interested in playing Fortnite or whatever they play, um, or if it's younger, maybe the play, the, the PlayStation. Or um, and and they're they're more interested in, um, you know. Talking to each other, maybe they don't want to talk to certain people, but it's it's not that you know, so they don't want to play game, do the game with certain people. But it isn't exactly the same as really the way um, a girl would do it. So I agree with you. Yeah, and and you know, to your point, um, having many clients who are really into Fortnite and other related uh, games, you know, it, it's more in the moment um, of the meanness, and you know, you're not part of our campaign, and or uh, or um, not being invited to the campaign. Mm -hmm. So there is more of that isolation, but it seems like um, it might not be as much of the really, like, I don't know, just the direct harm. Like, bullying, I just... I mean, it just... We have to highlight this point about how 
harmful uh, being bullied and especially being chronically bullied um, um, in public, virtual public, how harmful that is for identity development, particularly during the teenage years. Heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, um, it could be quite... You're, it's a, in a powerless situation, uh, particularly when you know something's going on, but you don't know exactly what, and you can't get access. And then, secondly, like, to like, what do you do about it? Like, how do you step in without making it worse? That's what this whole book is about: um, barbarians of PTA. So I'm glad you framed that that way. It's hard. Par- parents really do want to help, and it's true that if they go around, certainly if they say something to the other kids, well, that's the kiss of death. Mm -hmm. Fight with the other parents. And there's the whole other issue of the more you step in, you think you're helping your child. I've seen, I don't know if you've seen in your practice, it's really sad, but, and it's very interesting. If the parents rush in and fix it all the time, it feels good for, you know, for a while. And then that child goes off to school and they cannot navigate they, they really, that's the bad thing about the helicoptering that, you know, we, right, right. So you do have to, you don't, you cannot let a, a dangerous situation go on if, and this, you might want to get the school involved and, but, but at the same time, the kid has to try to navigate it on their own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you, what do you suggest then from, a parenting, parenting, um, like if you're parenting your teenage child who's experienced this to to reduce cyberbullying, to handle it themselves. I mean, I know you've written a piece on this, which is what what are the ways to stop cyberbullying or reduce it once it's started? Yeah, it. I guess it depends on a lot of different factors. It depends on um, who's in the community. Is it um, the school community? Is it a small town? Is it um, a, a bunch of kids in chat rooms or playing Fortnite. Um, y- you know, you would want to be specific to. You try to understand where where bullying comes from. Bullying often comes from a place of insecurity. They're trying to deal with something. Um, in a perfect world, you would be able to help the bully to with whatever they're going through, prob- family problems or um, some some real wound, right? And, but and then maybe they'd stop bullying, but that's something like maybe a Disney movie. So that, that probably doesn't happen. Um, and also it's very hard to, it's, it's hard to know what's going on. You, you might just see that your kid is up, not sleeping or getting a stomach ache. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's so mm-hmm. often not clear. You mm-hmm. have to get to the bottom of it. There's a whole thing about, do you check your child's phone? Of course, right. it depends right. on the child's age, but but when we got phones for our children, we said this is going to be something where, and when they're young, and I'm talking about maybe sixth grade or um, you know twelve or whenever they get their phone, mm-hmm. phone um, you we will be checking it. I'm not reading every message. You have you know, it's, I'm not looking over your neck. Do you do that for a sixteen year old? No, I, you know. But if you notice, as I said in passing, that your sixteen year old isn't sleeping or eating. Um, has dyed their hair a different color and also seems unhappy and has no friends all of a sudden or a different friend group or their grades are bad or, you know, you notice something, then it's time to find out what's going on. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to stop bullying. Um, You, you know, you would want to get the the school involved if it's cyber bullying. Sometimes there's an issue of 
has bullying occurred on school grounds? If there's, if they're on, if they're at the school and they're texting, um, you know, mean texts, we used to write a note, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so likes so-and-so and humiliate the person or something that, right, right, right. Or, but now they, they might, they might um, send, they, there's group text, there's sexting, which is a whole other thing. But even yep. on a lower level, maybe they say, um, oh, um, they, they innocently say, could you let, you know, could you, could you let Allie know that, um, that, that, you know, whatever the boy's name is, Dylan broke up with so-and-so. And then what happens is Allie looks like she likes Dylan, but she doesn't. And then everyone makes fun of her for liking Dylan because they told her to text about Dylan breaking up. If that, if that was probably very jarbled, garbled, if that makes sense, like pass this message on. And then what happens is the kids going around texting people because they think they're getting this good gossip or the, the popular people are letting them in on something. And then what they're really doing is, exposing themselves and looking like they like this boy and then everybody starts making fun of them or they take their phone and they send messages like that with it. I don't know if this mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So the phones introduce a whole new thing and kids are clever. You know, they, they know how to, they know how to use it. They know how to, how to do it. It's hard to, to so you try to get the school involved is what I was saying. Um, the school administration, no school wants bullying. It's really no. what can be done about it. Um, if the bullying's occurring at home, you know, the, the school's not able to say, well, those messages that someone's sending from their bedroom are under, you know, I believe it's not under their purview. I'm not giving you legal. That wouldn't be something I could do right now at all, but mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that, um, that that's the case. And so then there are, if something's really going on where somebody's really targeting a child and their health and well being is you, you know, and the school can't do anything, you, ha- you probably have to get the authorities involved. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're just reminding me of a flashback is we had to do that um, with one of our kids in middle school and uh, seems like years ago. And really, we had to do both things. And it was so impressive how it was investigated and nipped right away. And even with um, keeping the confidentiality of the person who was doing the bullying, I mean, everything was kept with complete confidence. I know it doesn't always go like this. Mm-hmm. But this was one where we felt we had to step in because of uh, safety issues and um, everyone responded. So um, this is, but this is the tough situation for anyone listening is again, we don't want to go in automatic rescue mode. We want to be very thought the, the point is to be thoughtful about your situation, your child's situation, the context, and really think about how to, yes, protect your child if there's imminent danger, but short of imminent danger, like what's the different ways to go about this so we're not just stepping in and um, seemingly solving a problem, but creating more problems and also not um, supporting that self-efficacy and that growth of being able to, to, with support, figure the situation out. It's a delicate balance. Mm-hmm. It is. So people are going to have to read the book to see how Victoria, mom Victoria, dealt with it, and especially um, how Rachel uh, dealt with this situation, this new situation that she was dealing with. And um, what would you leave, is, if, with regard to the book, what would you, what's the teaser that you would leave people um, 
about this uh, Desperate Housewives um, meets the um, college scandal meets the Mean Girls. Well, there's also a good romance angle, and I had a lot of fun. I had to learn to write romance and um, other things that go along with romance. <laughs> so that was fun. And so people, <laughs> people if they, you know, they want to see what happens to a mom who's trying to date in a small community and work and raise a child and also um, the mother-daughter relationship and also thinking about identity and how to parent and how kids and clicks and bullying and screens. It's just got a lot of um, uh, the over-involved parents and, and, you know, it, it does have a lot of uh, themes that we're talking about that really, that have to do with what people are going through today. Everybody is dealing with social media and the, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. so the power of social media is so tremendous you know, it's, it's influenced political elections. It's influenced campaigns for um, selling goods. You know, there's mm-hmm. a media blackout and people get really mad. If you advertise something, you know, you shouldn't be talking about luxury goods when there's a major social issue and everybody's screens are dark and, you know, social media just is really powerful. And I think mm-hmm. that um, mm-hmm. that's another thing that, you know, that comes through. Yes. Um, so many, so many uh, relevant issues that um, I think other we want to read about in other people so we can make sense of it in our own lives. And um, it's nice to read about others and, uh, and watch these shows uh, for us to make sense of this and be entertained at the same time because we do have to laugh and keep our sense of humor um, during uh, challenging times. It's supposed to be an escape the book and a beach beach read or just like a holiday, you know, read if you're home for a few days during the holidays or whatever. It is supposed to be an escape. (laughs) All right, everyone. Well, before we learn more about where you can get this book, it is time for that question, the parent footprint moment question. Okay. Are you ready, Dr. Stephanie? I am ready. Do I win a million dollars? Because that voice sounded like it was really exciting climax of a game show. You know what? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Tell us about a time when you became aware of yourself as an individual or as a parent, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your child. Okay. Um, so, two young children, my children and I, were going apple picking. Really fun, really great, out in the sun. Everything is nice. And we see, I see out of the corner of my eye, two boys, one of whom seemed to have a lot of challenges and was um, making sounds and rolling around. And it was heartbreaking for me. Um, I I couldn't tear my eyes away. The the parent, unfortunately, was really struggling with the the child with the challenges and name-calling and humiliating the child. It was very, very sad. And the sibling there tried to step in and said, don't be mean to him, please. And I don't know these people. I'm I'm picking apples. Mm. And I thought, okay, that's just so sad. And it bothered me for the whole time. And so the the parent had been calling names and really using curse words and humiliating the other child, unable to tolerate, I guess, that the child was struggling or that needed, had special needs. I don't know. And we we get to the checkout and I see them again. And um, what happened was the sibling who had stuck up for the, the, the child that was with the challenges um, who the child had been rolling down a hill and making sounds and just not, you know, not able to do the apple picking activity the way other people were. So the sibling, um, that, that said, don't call the, don't call him a, 
I don't even want to say the words on a podcast. Don't call him a this or a that. Don't use the F, you know, don't use the yes. words, dad. The sibling then, um, after the, like the cashier counted something wrong and the sibling said something to the cashier who had stuck up, the sibling who had stuck up for his brother said like basically a similar insult. Like, you don't know what you're doing. You can't even, you can't mm. get through the day without doing something stupid. And wow. it clicked where I thought, oh, this poor kid, these two kids and this overwhelmed parent, they, kids are watching our every move. Mm-hmm. And we are supposed to model reasonably good behavior as best as we can. And they will learn from us when we don't know they're learning. And I thought, okay, I'm not perfect. My God, I'm everyone's flawed, but I'm going to really try to show my best side or to not, mm. you know, do, do whatever things I don't want them to copy. And, you know, there's a, a thing if you, you know, if you, would you be, would you be okay if your grandmother saw you do that? So-and-so. So I sort right. of thought right. I, that was my, my footprint. I'm not, I, if, yeah. my grandma, if I wouldn't want my grandma to see this, I'm not trying not to do it in front of my kids. That is so, that is such a powerful story and image. I mean, the idea that you have the sibling defending their their sibling against um, a parent who's being verbally abusive and then to turn around and emulate that abusive parent's verbally abusive behavior to a shop clerk. I mean, there is no, there's no greater image of the transmission of um, parenting behavior than right there. Yeah, it was really sad. It, it really yeah. bothered me. So I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I you, and you said it much better than I did. Yeah. Well, thank you. That that's um, and you know, how much that impacts your kids, right? To have that awareness right there. Um, so, Dr. Stephanie, thank you so much. Um, there were so many areas that I wanted to dive in. I tried. We tried to hit a bunch of them. Um, of course, I mean, you, your your work is vast, and um, right now is this book, which is um, something that is so relevant to our times. Um, will make us laugh. Will make us think. Um, and uh, hopefully improve our own awareness. Tell everyone where they can not only get your book, but find all of your other works as well. Sure. Um, I always ask people, please go to independent bookstores in your neighborhood because they're struggling in the mm-hmm. pandemic. So I am sure you could request the book at any independent, some have it, but you could request it wherever you are or um, online, you know, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, um, other places. Um, and my work, my website is psychotherapist next door, psychotherapist com, and, um, other social media things would just be my name, Stephanie Newman. Um, and, uh, the psychology today blog is, is all on there and other, other things, other books I've written are on the website too. She's everywhere. Everyone. You can't, you can't, you can't miss their stuff. Uh, Dr. Stephanie, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your experience and knowledge with us. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. What a, it was a really, really um, interesting discussion. I, you know, talking to a, a psychologist parent who uh, is living through it too was really a fun way to get at it. Thank you. Awesome. My pleasure. Everyone, thanks for listening once again today. Please tell others about the show and subscribe so we can keep spreading the word and joining our mission about making the world a more loving and compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. Be the person you want your child to become. And remember, as Dr. Stephanie said, they're always watching. 
They're always listening. They're always learning from us. As always, I will leave you with the guiding question. What footprint do you want to leave? <laughs>